Gentlemen, all men strive for gold in their life, right? Gold medals, gold watches, gold everything. However, there is a certain type of man who goes the extra mile. He walks with the confidence of an eagle and giggles in the face of danger. He's a big, hairless, winning machine, and when he unzips his pants, he sees platinum. That's right. Manscaped would like to introduce you to their best and biggest ultimate hygiene bundle yet, the Platinum Package 4.0. Manscaped is the leader in below-the-waist grooming. Now trust them with the whole shebang. Join the 4 million women worldwide who have joined Manscaped by going to manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping with code PFF. Manscaped's brand new Platinum Package 4.0 is the biggest bundle they've ever offered, giving you the bulk discount on Manscaped's top products. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code PFF at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code PFF. It's time you enjoy the finer things in life and get yourself a platinum package for your platinum package. Welcome in to another jam-packed episode of Talking Ball. Today on the show, we have obviously Talking Ball segment. We have a little college football preview. Going to go through draft board just a touch, see which teams have the most talent in college football. That is draftable talent, not just overall talent. We're going to do uh, build an ultimate college football team based off the best units in college football. Then we're going to go through and make some predictions on who will be in the college football playoff. Pretty, honestly, I'm going to be honest with you right off the top. I'm not super, this college football season is the most top heavy that I can remember in terms of like a clear cut one and two. I can remember in, like if it's not going to be Alabama, Ohio State, I will be absolutely floored. You can bet literally right now on DraftKings for Alabama and Ohio State to each have 11 plus regular season wins. If you make that bet, it is minus 120. You are not even getting your money back you're, you're not even getting even money to get both 11 plus wins, which is insane. That's how good those two rosters are. We'll obviously get to that in a little bit. But then we have a Luke Fickle interview, Cincinnati head coach. If you don't listen to the interviews, you're going to want to listen to this one. Audio got a little choppy. I will be up front with you right there. Unfortunately, because he was electric, Fickle is great on the mic. He had to be ready to fucking put on a helmet and strap on some shoulder pads and get my ass kicked in an Oklahoma drill because... He's just that kind of personality. And then we got some segments at the end. PVOOs, would you rather, and football adjacent power rankings. All right, let's talk some ball. Cut day. Big story out of cut day. Alex Leatherwood. My Lord. Raiders, first round pick in 2021. And uh, we were critical of this at the time. Even I did not think he was getting cut year two. Like he was like somewhere in the 40s on the PFF draft board. Um, Obviously, new regime whatnot. But now that means that after Colton Miller, who was the Gruden era's very first first round pick, their first round picks were Cleveland Furl, Josh Jacobs, Jonathan Abram, all had their fifth year option declined heading into this season. Abram, the only one who looks like a starter and he may not even be. Damon Arnett, Henry Ruggs next year, both off the team, did not make it two years. Alex Leatherwood, off the team, did not make it two years. And now before you go shit on Mike Mayock, who was the GM, I would like to say, in Mike Mayak's defense, I have it on good authority. I'm not going to burn my source who it was. He was not in charge of the first rounds. First rounds were John Gruden. John Gruden had final say on first round picks in the John Gruden slash Mike Mayak era. Now, why Mike Mayak would agree to that when he took the job, 
Yeah. Unfortunate. I mean, he had to break into the league somehow. And obviously, if you're an NFL network, you know, quote unquote GM, it's not easy to probably get those opportunities in the league. So you take them where you got them. But I have a good authority. And it was not from Daniel Jeremiah. I'm not going to tell you who it was from that told me that. Not from Daniel Jeremiah. And then he said this in relation to it, who obviously Daniel Jeremiah, very close friends with Mike Mayock, quote tweeted a tweet from Dov Kleiman lamenting the Raiders' first-round picks, basically saying what I just said about how bad the Raiders' first-round picks have been, and said, this is actually a complicated situation, a lot of cooks in that kitchen, confirming to me what my source said, that, hey, it was Gruden making those picks. So Mayock's still a G. And Mike Mayock, if you look at his you know, record outside of round one, and the Raiders, if you just started them drafting in round three, they, they might have been the best drafting team in the Mike Mayock era, after round three. Who was their second round pick that let, uh, it was Trayvon Merrick, wasn't it? Trayvon Merrick, yeah, he was solid. Which we were very high on. He was solid, he's been solid. And Malcolm Kuntz looks like a breakout player after this preseason. And they got Nate Hobbs in the fifth round, who was one of the better slot cornerbacks in the league last year. So year before that, obviously Lynn Bowden, Brian Edwards, Tanner Muse, uh, John Simpson, Amik Robertson, kind of cheeks. But then 2019, they found Max Crosby in the fourth, Hunter Renfro, in the fifth year before that Arden key in the third who has been very good after he's you know not been 220 pounds which he was when he came out in the draft and actually put on some weight looks like a player actually for the jaguars this year so mike mayock here's at the record straight i'm not blaming him for the Raiders' struggles but john gruden tough tough scene uh obviously not there anymore won't be in the nfl anytime soon probably falls on his shoulders some other interesting news around cut day. O.J. Howard cut from the Bills after signing a free agent contract there and maybe coming to Cincinnati via Mike Quinn because of you, Mike. Is that right? Yeah. So if you're watching on YouTube, you can see the shirt that I have on. Uh, I tweeted it out too. But so this was back in, this stems from, it was 2019. It was actually, it, it was the weekend that uh, we left the Senior Bowl. So it was my first Senior Bowl. Uh, you guys got on a plane back to Cincinnati, or I don't know, maybe you didn't, because I think that was the year that you flew to oh, yeah. Mississippi by mistake. I went to the wrong place. So I, I, assuming you got home, um, but I, I, that was my 30th birthday weekend. So I actually went from Mobile to Sarasota to celebrate uh, my 30th birthday with the lady. And on, I think it was that Saturday, we had dinner uh, somewhere down there and we decided to go to the Westin first, which... Um, if you're ever in Sarasota and you get a chance to go to the Westin, it's sick. They got this awesome rooftop bar that like it overlooks the whole bay. Plus, I mean, it's the Westin. It's nice. They got mm -hmm. a pool up there, which we didn't really get to use because it was January. And I underestimated how cold it is in Sarasota in January. But anyway, I had this shirt on and we walk off the elevator and this dude's like, hey, bro, that's a cool shirt. And I said, thanks, man. Fashion Nova just kept it moving. Didn't think anything of it. Is big dude. So I was, that, that was my first thought. I was like, that's a. It's a big motherfucker right there. And the night goes on and, you know, dudes are coming up to him, like dapping him up, taking pictures and whatnot. And that's kind of when I realized like, okay, this is somebody because dudes don't just go up to other dudes and are like, hey man, can I get a picture? Like that just doesn't happen. <laughs> so we're, we get in the Uber and we go to dinner and I forget how it got brought up, but like our Uber driver was like, yeah, a lot of the Buccaneers are in town this weekend because maybe they had a buy or like played on Thursday. They, they were off. And, you know, it makes sense, right? You go an hour south to Sarasota and, you know, rip it up for the weekend. 
And so that like it clicked. It's like that's got to be somebody from the Buccaneers. So I pulled it up on my phone and I'm going through the roster and sure enough, it's OJ Howard. OJ Howard wanted the shirt off my back and now he's here, coming to Cincinnati. Take it. Yeah, the shirt's here and OJ Howard is here. Although I mean, it's like 4 p.m. here and he still hasn't signed. Apparently, they're still working on a deal mm. and they scooped up Devin Asiasi. So I don't know what's going on with that, but. Uh, I mean, I got like I have tickets to the Bengals Steelers home opener. Like, I got to wear the shirt, right? <laughs> you could get in the front row, scream OJ, yeah, and point at the shirt, and he's gonna be like, "Who the fuck is this guy trying yeah. to yell at me?" And he'll be like, "That shirt stinks, bro. It's outdated, two years old." I don't know. I still years, I'm kidding. No, I'm, I'm joking. That shirt's sick. Uh, I'm just saying, OJ Howard's gonna. Yeah, it's moved on. So that's um, my OJ story. OJ Howard. And now he's here. Maybe. Possibly. Um, other interesting cuts, Kellen Mond and Wyatt Davis, the third round of last year's Vikings draft, both gone. Wyatt Davis, the knee injury man, just never recovered his senior year. I guess his senior year at Ohio State was never the same player after that. Um, that's the whole, like, you know, why, why do guys take people off their board because of medicals? Wyatt Davis, why? Sometimes guys just never recover from injuries like that that, you know, should otherwise be routine. Uh, Kellen Mond, though, he was just so robotic. He just, he never really played. It was insane because he never really played well at Texas A&M despite having, you know, a good amount of talent around him. Um, did not see it coming, the axe coming this quickly. But if you're, if you're playing as poorly as he was, you kind of got to expect it. Um, it's hard to recover from being that bad after a full year, you know, in the NFL. Uh, and obviously a new regime not tied to Kelmond whatsoever. So yeah, Kelmond out the door there in Minnesota. Other somewhat surprising cuts here. Tyler Johnson, Buccaneers wide receiver. You thought maybe with um, some of the injuries there, they might want to hang on to him, but the kind of unspoken thing that Jim Nagy kept saying pre-draft about why he wasn't high on him, or not saying, just saying like, yeah, you know, like uh, he's not really that great a prospect. Uh, Tyler Johnson could not get to the right place at the right time. He, he was not a, he just did not have that part to his game. He made a lot of mental mistakes on tape with the Buccaneers. And obviously with Tom Brady, probably that's a Brady saying, not going to, not going to tolerate that for too long. So yeah, Tyler Johnson out the door. I believe he landed with the Texans though. So TBD on how he fares there and a couple of wide receiver trades, the 2020 wide receiver class on the move here, LaVisca Chanel traded uh, to the Carolina Panthers. Now why the Carolina Panthers, um, I don't know, because he's not like going to see the field there. They, they got a log jam at wide receiver. They got Terrace Marshall, who could barely see the field there, second-round pick last year, um, and kind of fills – doesn't really feel a role that they don't have there. But, man, he's just got to slim down. Like, that is the biggest thing I took away from watching his tape at Jacksonville last year is that, like, he turned into a fucking Hulk, dude. Like, he, he's like 230, and there's no reason at the wide receiver position – to be that size, unless you're like 6'5", but if you are, you know, a normal, you know, 6'2", 6'1", LaVisca Chenault, like there's no reason to be built like Najee Harris. He's got to slim down to get some of that flexibility, get some of that explosive and some speed element back to his game because he's just way too big. Guys get their hands on him way too easily. Do you think that they told him like, because maybe you're going to be some sort of like hybrid wide receiver? Wide receiver slash running back. Do you think maybe he did that Possibly. I mean, it could be. Urban Meyer has said a lot of wrong things in the past year and a half. So could have very well told him that, you know, he's filling that role in the offense and forced him to put that on. But dude, he's got, he's got to trim back down. He's got, cause he does not look like the guy, even 
freshman year, sophomore year at Colorado that we saw. Um, the other one, Jalen Rager traded to the Minnesota Vikings for fourth and a seventh. Um, some conditional aspects to that trade. But Jalen Rager, obviously another guy who got huge from what he put, was on tape at um, TCU. Showed up like 205 to the combine. Never should have been that. Uh, obviously trimmed down a little, and his issues weren't just related to that. But that's given up on a guy early. Obviously, they have a ton of wide receivers there in Philadelphia, and like he won't even see the field, so it's not that big a deal. But I, I'm not ready to call Jalen Rager, a 23-year-old wide receiver with his kind of talent, a complete lost cause. I'm just not. We, we've seen enough over the years that guys can change. And, and great job by Questia Dofimenza, the new Vikings GM, to make that trade, to pull that trigger. And great job by Howie Roseman, too, to say, you know, he's not going to factor in this roster. We want to get something back from him. I'm not too proud to say, hey, we took him over Justin Jefferson. I'm not going to trade him to Minnesota because everyone's going to fucking meme and bring up the phone call where Mike Zimmer um, and Rick Spielman were laughing at me for taking Justin Jefferson. Because that's all you saw over Twitter was that pick and that video after the trade went down. How Rosen does Gary? He's going to make the best deal. He's going to make the best roster. And he's done a heck of a job doing so. And obviously made a great deal with the C.J. Gardner-Johnson trade as well. Which is interesting from the Saints' perspective. Because obviously you think about the Saints being all in year after year, just dealing away a starter for, you know, mid-round picks. Um, but C.J. Gardner-Johnson is kind of the personality where if he's unhappy, I don't think you'd want him in your locker room. We've seen how he can trash talk other people. Trash talking your own locker room, he could do damage. I mean, he could overnight bring that locker room to its knees just from a verbal perspective. So... I could see why they got rid of him. Like people are questioning it. It it makes sense to me why they did. If you haven't heard by now, underdog fantasy is the best and easiest place to play fantasy football this summer. We've all been there in fantasy football leagues. It's Sunday morning and you're digging through news reports trying to figure out whether to start your stud wide receiver that tweaked his hammy or you have a player on your team that hasn't been getting in the end zone. And then one week he suddenly goes off for 30 points on your bench. With Underdog Fantasy, all the stress of who to start each week is lifted off your shoulders because it's best ball format. Draft your teams before the season starts and get the best score in your lineup each week. Right now, you can draft an Underdog's Best Ball Mania 3 tournament to take your shot at $10 million in total prizes. Plus, Underdog is going to double your first deposit up to $100 when you sign up with the promo code PFF. That's right, $100 in free money. Also, if you play 10 of those 10 of those dollars using promo code PFF, you get a free PFF subscription. So basically, you're paying less than what you would pay at PFF.com. And it's a little, little cheat code there for you. Underdog drafts close before NFL kickoff. So what are you waiting for? Head to underdogfantasy.com or the App Store. Play $10 with code PFF and draft in your best ball mania team today. Get ready for the NFL Week 1 action with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Bet just $5 on any football game and get $200 in free bets instantly. And now, everyone can experience the thrill of DraftKings' early win promotion. Get up seven, you win. Bet on any NFL team of your choice, and if your team leads by seven points at any point during the game, you get paid instantly, even if your team loses. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. Best of all, you can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use the promo code PFF to get $200 in free bets instantly when you place a $5 bet on any football game. That's PFF only at DraftKings Sportsbook. 
21 plus in most eligible states, but age varies by jurisdiction. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for terms and resources. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In Tennessee, call or text the Tennessee red line at 1-800-889-9789. In New York, call 877-8-HOPANY or text HOPANY 467-369. One per customer. Minimum $5 deposit and wager. $200 issued as $825 free bets. All right, that's the talking ball segment. Let's get into a little college football preview. Going to go through here the conference by conference and highlight the teams with at least three players, three prospects. So that's obviously draft eligible guys, three years out of high school. Three prospects on the PFF Top 100 Draft Board, which you can find right now at pff.com slash draft slash big hyphen board. That's where you find it. I'll put it in the link. Put it in the link. I put it in the description. A lot easier than trying unsure. to figure out what I just did there. Uh, but we'll start off with the ACC, where Clemson, the clear favorite, heading into this college football season, also the clear favorite. They are the uh, and clear favorite in that conference. They are ranked fourth overall. Uh, NC State is the second-ranked team in that conference, ranked 13. Big fan of Demolary, NC State QB. I, I think they could... I was about to say make some noise. I had to stop myself. I don't think they make. I think they could challenge Clemson for the ACC. I truly do. But I also think Clemson's defensive line is going to be absolutely devastating this year. Has the chance to be, you know, to rival uh, last time. You know, Georgia last year, Clemson twenty eighteen. Like this is that caliber of offensive line, uh, or excuse me, defensive line. Miles Murphy, Brian Brzee both top 10 on the PFF draft board at defensive end, defensive tackle, respectively. The big question, DJ Uyunglele, is he going to look like the guy we saw? Like, even if he's the guy we saw as a freshman, they are, they are they're making the playoffs. They're, they're going to run the table because their defense is that good. But that's a big if because the dude got yips in the biggest way. I would not be surprised if freshman Cade Klubnick Ends up even taking st- snaps away from him because that was bad. Too many Dr. Pepper commercials, not enough. No, I, I hate when people say that. I mean, he just he just lost. He just put a little too much pressure on himself is probably all it was. Hopefully, he realizes that uh, there's nothing to lose at this point besides his job, which may very well happen soon. But, uh, yeah, Clemson, the most prospects of any team in uh, the ACC on the PFF Top 100. We need DJ to be good, too, because then we can maybe try to get Big Dave back on the podcast. Know, dude. He was, That's a callback to the we had him. We had him agreed to come on, and then we had to be like... Um, yeah, unfortunate situation. We're going different ways. But mm-hmm. Big Dave, former Rihanna bouncer, his father, who also son of, or father of uh, Mateo, five-star defensive end, DJ's brother, has not decided where he's going to go yet, but that guy's a freak. Uh, so we'll see. Syracuse and Clemson also have three guys in the PFF draft board, each respectively. Um, yeah, th- it is a... ACC has got actually some quarterback talent this year. Um, so we shall see how that conference shakes out. Like I said, I'm probably going Clemson, as we'll see with my college football playoff picks. On to the Big Ten, where Ohio State and Michigan are the only teams with at least three prospects in the PFF top 100 draft board. Um, each have four. A little surprising for Ohio State. I mean, they're getting really hyped up this season. It's more because they're a complete roster with just an insane passing attack. Uh, not necessarily because, like, last year, I think they had more draft talent, probably. This year, though, 
Yeah, I mean, that wide receiving core, Jackson Smith and Jigba, Marvin Harrison Jr. with C.J. Stroud, and a very good offensive line as well. It's going to be that, – that's, that's just the – that's right. Them in Alabama, the reason they're one-two, just too clear-cut by far the best offenses in the country. They're just going to put a points on everyone. So that's why – that's why they're up there. Ohio State's obviously giving me my pick to win the Big Ten. Uh, Michigan also four prospects um, in the top 100. They're reloading. No real, like, super difference makers, though, I'd say. Like, the first prospect on this list comes in at number 70. Uh, Blake Corm, the running back, who I'm very high on. Uh, I thought he was clearly the better of the two between him and Hassan Haskins last year. He'll be getting a lot more touches. RJ Moton, the safety, comes in at 76th. Then you have uh, Iabi Enoma, the recently transferred, who, former five-star, if you haven't heard of this guy, he's 88th on the PFF big board, transferred from UT Chattanooga. But he started at Alabama, transferred from Alabama to Houston, then transferred from Houston to UT Chattanooga. So this is his fourth school. The guy is a hell of an athlete, not much of a hell of a football player, but Michigan's had good success developing defensive linemen. So we shall see how he fares there. But he literally just got there like a week and a half ago. So... That'll be interesting to see. And then Mozzie Smith checks in at 99th on the PFF Top 100. Obviously, Bruce Feldman's number one freaks list player if you listened to last episode. But that's it for the Big Ten. Um, I'm still high on Wisconsin's chances this year. Uh, I know Braylon Allen, obviously not draft eligible, only 18 years old. I don't know if you've heard that. He's a freak, or is he 19 now? But he's, that guy's one hell of a running back. He's going to be the next in the Wisconsin running back pipeline. Nick Herbig defensively, and obviously Jim Leonard, the best, you know, top three DC in all of college football. They'll be right in the mix, but I will say Michigan's schedule is favorable in terms of they could be rolling into the Ohio State game undefeated this season. So uh, that's where probably it starts and ends with the Big Ten in terms of the playoff conversation. On to the Big 12, where Lincoln Riley knew. Oklahoma, not one of the teams with three prospects on the PFF top 100. Um, not a lot left in the cupboard after Lincoln left. Um, I don't think they win the Big 12 this season, truthfully. I, I think Texas, do I want to bet on Steve Sarkeesian? TBD, but I, I think Texas offensively, Quinn Ewers, if he is as advertised, should be able to move the ball. And obviously, B. John Robinson, you know, probably the single best running back in the country. It, it's a massively loaded running back class coming up. Unbelievable amount of talent. To me, the best I've seen in the PFF era. And Bijan still look like clear one for my take, for my money. Just dude's got an all-around skill set. So he will be featured a lot. That's a good combination when you have a running back of that caliber. And at a collegiate level, running backs can kind of, they are their own rushing offense. And I think it's why a lot of people still believe so much in drafting running backs highly is because at pretty much every other level of college, of, of football, running backs matter a ton. Like having that guy changes games. But then in the NFL, the athletes are so good. The sort of the holes are so small. The game is so different that the running back position does not matter as much. And so still having a guy like Bijan is going to get them in the mix. But the only two teams with three prospects in the top 100 on the PFF draft board, TCU of all places. And they lost one in Zach Evans transferring the running back to Ole Miss. But TCU with wide receiver Quentin Johnson and then their pair of cornerbacks, Noah Daniels uh, and uh, – why am I blanking? Travius Hodges-Tomlinson, TBT. That's why I was blanking on the name because I always call him TBT. Travius Hodges-Tomlinson, um, one of the best cornerback groups in the country. Are they going to be the best? We'll see when I build the ultimate team here in a little bit. But those two are great. Kansas State, um, 
Deuce Vaughn, fun to watch Hall of Famer. If you haven't heard Deuce Vaughn, again, go watch his highlight tape. Five foot six, 176 pounds, and a top three running back in the country right now. Dude's, dude's insane. All right, out of the Pac-12, where it's only Oregon and USC who have three prospects on the PFF draft board, but I, I may believe her in Utah this year. They may not have a ton of draftable talent, but I think they have a very good college football team. I think Cam Rising is a very good college football quarterback. We'll get to them when we talk about the playoffs, but I believe in them. Um, Oregon has hell of a linebacker duo, a lot of talent defensively, worry about their offense to a degree. Um, and then USC, I just, I don't know. They're kind of a wild card. It'll be very interesting to see how they shake out because they were a flawed, flawed roster. Obviously got a lot better when Caleb Williams transferred in and Jordan Adams had transferred in, but I still don't think it's going to clear up all the holes that we're missing, especially on the defense side of the ball, which has obviously notoriously been Lane Kiffin's weak suit over his career at Oklahoma. So we'll see how they fare. Obviously going to be much, much better than what they were in the Clay Hilton era. Hard to be worse. So on to the SEC, which is really the where the battle's going to go down because, like I said, we had Clemson, Ohio State, and Michigan with four was the most prospects in the top 100 before we got to the SEC. Alabama has 10. Alabama has 10 prospects in the top 100 on the PFF draft board. And there's guys that I've seen on other top 100s that did not make the top 100 on the PFF draft board. This Alabama team's sick. When Nick Saban said last year they were rebuilding, he was not joking. This Alabama roster is absurd. Um... Yeah, they're just, it's difficult. And like at the right positions too. They have one of the best quarterbacks in the country, if not the best, depending on your opinion. I think he's the best. They have a great receiving core. They have an insane defensive line. They have the best secondary maybe in the country. It's just Alabama's loaded once again. Georgia has six though. Georgia is up there. Georgia did not lose despite losing an insane amount of NFL talent last year. They didn't lose them all. Guy by Jalen Carter and Keely Ringo are both top 10 prospects on the PFF draft board. Nolan Smith, a top 20 prospect, along with Broderick Jones. So four guys in the top 20, five guys in the top 50, six guys in the top 100 from Georgia. If they didn't have Stetson Bennett at quarterback, I'd, I'd, put, them, I'd put them in the conversation, but they have Stetson Bennett at quarterback. I mean, he is just so limiting to what you can do offensively. He's not even like a running threat. I don't know. I just cannot believe that Georgia, that that's the best they can do for a multiple-year stretch is Stetson Bennett at the quarterback position. The other teams with three in the SEC, Auburn, Texas a LSU, and there's one more team with three out there lurking in college football, out there, you know, the underdogs across the college football landscape. You know, the number five overall team in the country, underdogs, Notre Dame. They also have three on the PFF top 100. Those are your players in the top 100. Now let's build the ultimate team. Let's talk about some of the best units across the landscape in college football. And we are going to start at the quarterback position where this one is not really a conversation. It's Alabama to me. Bryce, he's just, he's got that it factor. I've, I'll keep saying it until I'm proven wrong about this. The it factor of Bryce Young. Everyone that's been around him says it. And just like flipping on his tape, it's hard not to believe in it. He's just a super talented dude. And the thing that, you know, Short quarterbacks get knocked on is how can they work the middle of the field? How can they see over the line of scrimmage? He was the highest graded quarterback who worked in the middle of the field last year. He's now a lot of those are deep balls to Jamison Williams that may dry up a little bit, but Tyler Harrell is faster than Jamison Williams, the Louisville transfer. Is he near nearly as polished? No, but that guy can fly. So deep balls ain't going anywhere. 
best running back unit in the country. So Alabama's QBs is what I'm taking. Running backs, I'm going, I already highlighted this. Texas, Bijan, Robinson, Roshan Johnson. That's a hell of a one-two punch. Roshan would be starting for a lot of places right now if Bijan Robinson didn't exist. Texas has the best running backs in the country. Onto the wide receiver position where I already raved about these guys too, and it's Jackson Smith and Jigba, Marvin Harrison Jr., the Ohio State wide receiver core. I, I think I think Marvin Harrison Jr. is better than JSN right now. I do. And I know I get called a JSN hater every time I bring him up, but like he's gonna run a four five five at six foot two hundred. He's he's exceptional working in the middle of the field, exceptional ball skills, exceptional after the catch. I I I think Marvin Harrison Jr. is like that do it all X outside type of wide receiver. Um yeah, I, I just think he's insane. So that Ohio State wide receiver core. Uh, it ain't slowing down anytime soon, despite losing the 10th and 11th overall picks last season, the 12th overall pick the season before that. I mean, an insane amount of college football. Talent. Justin Fields threw to the best receiving core in college football history probably back in 2020 COVID year when they did have Jamison, when they did have Jack Smith and Jigba as well. Uh, that's going to go down in history as really being something else. Uh, on to the tight end position where this one – I think I just said 2020 Ohio State was the best receiving core in college football history. 2022 Georgia is the best tight end group in college football history. I, I truly believe in this. I, I hard pressed for me to find too many better than this. You have Brock Bowers, who was by the end of last season the best tight end in college football as a true freshman. Poorly runs in like the four fours at like 240 pounds. He is an animal. And honestly, I don't think he needs to get any bigger. He blocks like an animal, too. Uh, that guy's a special athlete. And then Eric Gilbert, who was the highest-rated Titan recruit ever, that we've talked about a bunch in this podcast already about his prospects, is runs in the 4-4s four at 250, uh, moves like a wide receiver, might play some wide receiver for Georgia at 250, but obviously has the off-field. He just missed last season, and no one's ever come out and said why. He showed up back when he did come back to Georgia in the spring at 300 pounds. So a weird sort of career arc for a guy like that. But we'll see how he fares in the football field. But talent, no one's denying that. You'll find him as high as like top 15 on people's draft boards because he's that physically gifted. And then Darnell Washington, the absolute monster who, you know, doesn't hold a candle to the other two guys athletically. But it's kind of hard to when you're six foot seven, 270 pounds. He'll be a draftable prospect, probably somewhere Day three, obviously coveted for his length, his inline blocking ability, but it's an insane tight end group there at Georgia. All right, on to the best offensive line in the country, and I'm going to get called the homer for this, and rightfully so. But this Notre Dame offensive line is very good. This Notre Dame offensive line is tremendous, in fact. Joe Alt at left tackle, Blake Fisher at right tackle. You haven't heard much about them because they were true freshmen last year. But Joe Alt was one of the highest was the highest graded true freshman offense tackle in the country. Blake Fisher was the one of the highest, I think he was the second highest rated recruit, played very well. His very first game against Florida State, Jermaine Johnson, before he got hurt, was injured out for the rest of the year. But that's a very good tackle duo. And then you have Jarrett Patterson on the interior as well, along with Josh Lugg, who's like a six-year senior at this point. They got a lot of a lot of talent on that line. That is, if there's any reason behind ND. If there's any reason to justify their fifth overall ranking, which I'm I'm not even that high on them, it's because this offensive line is that good. It is legit. Best defensive line in the country, Clemson. Whew. 
I already, I already raved about him. But you got Brian Brissy, Miles Murphy, the headliners right there, who are probably going to be top 10 to 20 picks next year's draft. You got Tyler Davis, a guy who injuries over the course of his career, but he was the highest graded true freshman tackle, defensive tackle in the country back in 2019, I believe. So going into his senior year now. And then, oh, this name I'm going to just butcher. But Ruke or Horhoro. Hate that I hate that I didn't look that pronunciation up before I tried to say his name here live on air. But a versatile defensive lineman, number 33 for them. Also, probably going to be drafted somewhere in the mid-rounds in next year's draft. That's a lot of talent on one defensive line. So, yeah, Clemson. Pretty stacked on that side of the ball. Best linebacker group in the country. We're going to Oregon. And Penny Sewell's brother, Noah Sewell, the massive, I mean, he's kind of a, it's kind of a Leo Chanel-esque linebacker there at 6'2", 250. Maybe not what projects best to the NFL. He may not get drafted super highly. But in college football, you don't want to block him when he blitzes. And you don't want to see him in the hole as a running back when it's one-on-one because you're going backwards. I mean, he hits like an absolute freight train. Scary dude. And then Justin Flo, who may end up being the first linebacker drafted next year if he just stays healthy. Played one game in his collegiate career, but he was a, I think, a top five recruit coming out at linebacker, number one overall linebacker recruit. Watches one game against Fresno State and was in awe of what that guy can do physically. At 240 pounds, he can fly. This linebacker core for Oregon is sick. Cornerback group, I might take some heat for this, but I like, I'm taking TCU's cornerback group. TVT, Travis Hodge Tomlinson, is an exceptional. It is maybe like the best collegiate corner in the country. Not a great NFL prospect because he's 5'9", 180. But that doesn't really, like those guys, it doesn't matter as much in college football. You're not going up against physical monsters. Like You're not going up against guys who know how to use their size nearly as much. You are going up against guys who really aren't technically savvy. And when that's the case, he sticks with wide receivers better than anyone else in the country. His fluidity, he was on Bruce Feldman's freaks list because he runs reportedly in the low four threes. His fluidity at that size is insane. And then Noah Daniels, if he just stays healthy, we've talked about him a bunch. One of the best pure man-to-man corners in college football, but has played under 500 snaps in five years because he has never stayed healthy on the football field. And then the last one here, best safety group in the country, Alabama. They, they had, this is where I was saying... They had guys that did not make the PFF top 100 that I've seen on other top 100s. And that's some of the safeties that they got in the mix there. And DeMarco Hellams and uh, Malachi Moore in that kind of, he's in like the slot role. But Brian Branch is safety two on the PFF draft board. Jordan Battle, safety four on the PFF draft board. They got talented. That is a hell of a safety group. And then Kool-Aid McKinstry is a hell of a cornerback, but he's only a true sophomore, obviously not draft eligible. But that is your ultimate team, your best units across college football. Get to the playoff, my predictions for it. And again, I'm not super excited. I'm obviously excited for college football. I, I, Saturday, I will be at the horseshoe, losing my mind accordingly, losing my dignity as well. But I am realist. And, and I know that Ohio State is a much, much better football team especially on the offensive side of the ball, than Notre Dame is at this point. My playoff predictions, Alabama 1, Ohio State 2, Clemson 3, Utah 4. I think Utah sneaks in. I, I don't think we get to – I don't think there's that clear second-best SEC team this year. I think there's good parity in the SEC. I think Georgia will lose more than one game. And then at that point, 
I think it's going to be difficult to put them in over like to someone like Utah, who very well may go undefeated because Pac-12 outside of USC, Oregon, not the deepest division, not the deepest conference. Uh, not a lot of teams are. So there you have it. There are my playoff predictions. Let's go now to a coach who knows a thing or two about coaching the playoffs. Luke Fickle, like I said, the audio on this may be a little shaky at times. I apologize for it, but the content, top-notch. Trust me, you're going to want to listen to this one. I am joined now by Cincinnati football head coach, Luke Fickle, coach of the year, Randy coach of the year. You're actually, there was like, I was looking it up. There's like, you won six coach of the year awards. That seems like entirely too many coach of the year awards. How, did you have to go to like six different banquets to get those? No, no, thank goodness. Uh, you know, they still did some stuff virtually and some things like that, you know, in, in the preparation for playing in the bowl and then the playoff stuff. Um, there were some things you couldn't get to. So I guess, uh, Save you from having another meal that I probably didn't choose. <laughs> well, I'm going to get right into that playoff stuff because I know you're probably sick and tired of talking about it, but I just had a few questions about that Alabama game. The biggest one being, what was the pregame speech like? Because to, the storylines were straight out of a movie. I have to imagine the pregame speech was something similar, right? Well, you kind of got to figure out, you got to know what your team is. And I think that's what's mm -hmm. difficult sometimes when people think it's about a a pregame speech in some sorts. I think a lot of the stuff leading up to the game, you know, you're talking about the, you know, what what it's like and what the, you know, what the scenarios and the situation. But for us in particular, you didn't want to, you know, kind of put this connotation in your head like it's, you know, David versus Goliath or something. Mm -hmm. So we had a unique team that, that had a lot of confidence. Um, so I, I kind of sided away from just saying, hey, we're playing, you know, the monsters. Uh, and kind of really went on to, about the confidence to, to who we are and what we do is good enough. And in some ways, that was my philosophy. That's the way we had been all year, you know, because we had played some big games, whether it was the Notre Dame game and things like that. Um, so it wasn't as much of a, hey, let's uh, let's go shock the world. We kind of went into the season with, hey, we know what our expectations are. So as you get to the end, you don't want to change your philosophy. Now, I would say that one of the biggest mistakes I made is is maybe in, in that preparation of understanding not just the magnitude, but what the environment and some things are like that I, I believe I could have done a better job whether it was in the pre-prep or even in right before the game. Do you ever have to or did you have to like calm guys down? Because like such a big stage, such a different moment from anything they probably ever uh, lived before. Do you even with like your speech or how you approach a team be like, hey, this is like just another game. This is just uh, business as usual almost. So we never would say it was just another game, but yes, in some <laughs> ways, no, but I mean, in some ways it was about, Hey, let's don't play, you know, so emotional and things like that. Like, you know, this is going to be a four quarter battle, but what uh, I didn't do a really job of is in the pre of really prepping them of what that environment's going to be like. I assumed a little bit of the year before playing Georgia and the peach bowl, um, that they, you know, kind of understood and, and under, knew what it was going to be like. But the reality is there was only like 8,000 people in COVID year. And I think the environment in some ways, maybe that that initial shock, we did not play well in the first couple series. Uh, and I think that might have had something to do with the emotions of whether it's pregame and things like that, that you you get so high and then that, that initial shot, you know, you, maybe you don't really have any focus in mentality to what it is that you need. But uh, those are all things that just, you start to evaluate after uh, after the game and, and after what uh, you know what the, the outcome looks like and where you could have done better. 
Did you ever get frustrated with kind of the conversation around the playoff last year? Because I know I did about the Cincinnati team and kind of how the media treated you guys with almost kitty gloves saying, oh, you know, it's a group of five team. Yeah, if they go undefeated, but like a one loss, other team should make it when you guys had nine players drafted, the third most of any team last year. Like you had legit NFL talent. You had more players drafted than Alabama did. Like and I was banging the table for that. I'm like, look at this because I'm the NFL lead draft analyst here. And like, yeah. I'm like, from a talent perspective, they can hang with anyone. They got an NFL QB and like to, to kind of just relegate them to, you know, the Hawaii's of the world, the teams that have made noise, the group of five in the past was just to me yeah. insulting. Did that ever, did you ever like factor in or did you ever hear any of that chatter? That's why we try not to talk about the first things because it is deep down inside. Uh, we've always said that even when we, we weren't very good in the first year that we're no different. And I didn't want it to be an excuse because Hey, you go and you, you know, in year one, you play Michigan. I don't care what our league is or what people say or what people call, you know, the group that we're in. Um, you know, so so it's always kind of been that mentality. So when they talk about it, the, the whole thing was all year was we're not carrying the flag for anybody other than ourselves. It isn't some, hey, they're, you know, they're, they're representing all the, the underdogs or all the guys who aren't in the, so to speak, you know, top groups. Uh, you know, as you can tell, I don't say that that word of G5 stuff. I love it. Um, so we, we kind of the whole year, we're like, we're not carrying a flag for anybody else other than ourselves. We have our burdens. We know what our expectations are. That's plenty. We put the press upon ourselves. We're not worried about, you know, not just what people say, but, you know, even even the positive, the people are saying about how you guys representing us. Like, no, no, we represent We represent our, our program. Um, and that's plenty for us. How do you, so it's a new team, obviously, this year, like I said, you had nine players off to the NFL that got drafted, a lot of new starters. Those guys are obviously going to be hungry to prove themselves, but how do you yourself not get complacent as a head coach saying, you know, obviously probably a lot of the goals that you set out to when you started at UC, you probably accomplished at this point. So how do you yourself not kind of get complacent and rest on your laurels? Wake up every morning and say, you deserve nothing. Uh, you, you earn everything. Right before we walked in here, we just got done watching the, uh, I think the 12 or 13 big plays that uh, we gave up against <laughs> Alabama in, in the game. So um, it's a good time to ask that question because just got done watching as bad as it gets. Uh, but I, I think that it's not just about, you know, that everyday mentality. For me, it's about the program. And so we've all had to fight those things, I think, in some ways, whether it's, you know, me as a head coach or an assistant coach or somebody just walking in here or anybody in our program. It's, it's a good thing to have to battle against, right? I mean, you'd rather have that than than the other stuff that uh, everybody's speaking negatively about you. And, you know, you don't have any expectation. You're trying to fight your way out of the cellar. Either way, you, you've got some things you got to battle against. And um, I think I sent a text message last night to a lot of the guys and coaches about I felt a little complacency. I don't know if that's practice 19, you know, wanting to get on to Arkansas and, and not finishing up this, so to speak, you know, kind of camp mentality. Um, so I'm not saying we've got it perfect. It's something that uh, creeps into my mind, whether it's for me or players. So you yourself, obviously saying you're not complacent. You're still as hungry as ever, but like as a fan base and the perception around Cincinnati, how has that changed? Because it's definitely different. I, I moved here in Cincinnati in 2015, right before obviously you started here. How is it different from when you first, whether it's fan interactions, whether it's yeah. stepping into recruits houses, how much different is the kind of energy around the program? Oh, it's, it's definitely different. And you can't say that you don't notice. I mean, it doesn't matter whether, you know, you're on campus and there's a little bit of a buzz or 
you know, you're in the community, there's definitely a buzz. And, you know, I, I guess you could say sometimes for me, that's where the, some of the pressure comes, you know, when you have that kind of outside people, you know, so excited about it, which is a great thing, you know, you start to remind yourself like, Oh, okay, this is, this is really starting all over again. And I, you know, it, it's a great thing, but I don't want to ever sound like, you know, we're, we're, we're not happy about the excitement we've got in, in the, uh, you know, the notoriety, so to speak, around the, uh, around the city and the community. You know, you look at all this change in the NIL world for our kids. Mm-hmm. It's a really good thing to have, obviously, your program in a really good place and those guys in a, in a higher profile uh, situation to help them out in the long run. But all those things just bring a little bit more upon you to say, okay, how are we going to handle this? Do we really have the maturity to be able to handle some of these other things, especially as this new season gets rolling and there's going to be some some more adverse situations that you know we're going to have to be able to handle with a lot of new, not new guys because we got a lot of guys that've been here, but new leadership and and a new kind of you know environment and culture that you know is always um, every year kind of adapting and changing. So the energy around the program, some may describe it as big thick energy. Which if you're walking around tailgates or at the UC campus, you'll see shirts with that up and down. What do you think of that moniker? Do you like that moniker, or is that does your wife hate it? Do you do you enjoy it? <laughs> I don't know if we've ever even talked about it. I, I think no matter what, it's just okay. So, so I'm 49 years old now, and, and my wife says sometimes you act like an 18 year old. I said, well, I need to continue to act like an 18 year old to have the energy to guys and to create it amongst our program. And you know, I'm not saying I have to do it because we got a lot of guys that got an incredible amount of energy, coaches included. But I think it it is. It always comes from the top and. When we walked in the door here, we told the kids, I said, if, you, if you're if you a laid back person, this is probably not going to be a good program for you because in general, there's nothing that we do that doesn't have some sense of urgency and, and energy behind it, whether it's the complete off season, whether it's hey, a pickup tournament basketball we're doing or whatever it is, it's like, we don't want to fake it. Like if we're going to do something, uh, we're probably going to do it at, at an energy level and a, and a expectation level that maybe it's beyond what some guys would, uh, would expect. So you were college roommates with Mike Vrabel. You guys both won coach of the year at your respective levels last year. And you had one of my favorite quotes ever when asked about that. You, someone asked, did you ever expect this? You said, I expect it from me, but not from Mike. But I, <laughs> I, had, I had a great story about Mike able from the combine this year and very much encapsulates who he was. One of my scouting buddies um, is a scout for the Giants, scouting intern for the Giants at the combine. There's like a free for all with all these uh, players that you're grabbing to interview. Scouting intern has a player. Mike Vrabel comes up and is taking him to the room for the Giants. Mike Vrabel just comes up, takes the player and says, he's coming with me. What, what would you do <laughs> if Mike Vrabel came up to you and did something like that? Well, we've had quite a few of those uh, altercations at some point in time. They probably weren't over players, you know, but back in college, it could have been anything at that point in time. The last meal in the fridge of some sorts. And um, I think we've had a, we've had our uh, our bouts plenty of times. And uh, I think just because the nature of what it was, it probably would have been a little bit uglier than maybe it was <laughs> with, the, uh, with, the, with the Giants guy. But no matter who you are, if a head coach in that situation, whether it's Mike or – you know, whoever, it would be a hard situation. But uh, I think it would definitely have been a little bit different, maybe A, because of the relationship, but also B, because of uh, the uniqueness of having that happen probably 15 to 20 times at some point in time in our lives. So you learned 
there like basically came up under Jim Trestle and you've said you had to kind of unlearn the conservatism that was Jim Trestle and his love for special teams, his love for punting and all that. Are we ever here at PFF going to convince you to go full on analytics, go full bore into the aggressiveness that is analytics? Well, well we do. I mean, I don't know if everybody knows and understands that. I mean, yeah. it has definitely changed us and, and I'll go all the way back to not that when I, came here I knew that okay look I, I'm not coach Tress yes I grew up under that era and, and I understand for us to be successful we have to do things our way not always the way that you learn them and um, I think it was year two when we kind of got into the analytics of things and for me being a defensive guy in general it just allowed me to not you know always just think in some of those defensive mentalities like well we're going to play really good defense so punch the ball down let us let us win the game um, and it so to be honest with you, we really started doing a lot more of the analytics in year two. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of really rolled. We fell, not fell into it, but we said we were going to do it. We said we were going to be more aggressive. We preached it all of camp. And that week one where we kind of followed through with playing UCLA at UCLA, I think in the last drive, we went for it on fourth down three times when we were up three. We went for it on fourth and one, you know, when all of a sudden you could have kicked the field goal to go up. You obviously with a minute to go in the game to make them have to, you know, obviously score a touchdown to win the game, it, you know, and it, it kind of worked out. So I would say I wasn't sure I was a true believer until that whole year kind of continued to bring me to, uh, to where I am today and, and knowing that in everything we do, we're going to be aggressive. Uh, you know, that there are some things that I would say maybe that analytics don't, take into consideration just with the, you know, momentums or energy or even, um, you know, different things that can be a gut feel within a game. But I know for me, it's been really, really critical in helping me evolve the mentality for myself of kind of the way that I grew up. I'll also say this about analytics and I'll use like Brandon Staley as kind of a, uh, someone a coach to point to that like everyone loves Brandon Staley if you just say you know the analytics told me to do it, it it's kind of like passing the buck it, it's an easy cop-out for you like you don't have to you don't have to answer for it the, the analytics guy now has to answer for it you know yeah they don't know who that analytics guy is but uh, <laughs> no it, it, the mythical analytics it, and I yeah and, and I've always kind of thought about that and it, it, it's people always say that well you're not the one who has to go to the press conference afterwards and I say the press conference is the least of my words my biggest worry is to stand up in front of that team afterwards. I can't say I was a diehard believer in that year one. And uh, I made a, kind of a commitment as we did as a team to, to be aggressive. And it worked out and it really helped change the environment and the, and the culture of our program after that at UCLA win. And uh, to me, the whole thing was about standing in front of those guys. I never have been, you know, really worried about the press conference afterwards because those guys in those, that room means so much more. And the last thing I would ever do is, well, the book told me guys afterwards, you know, it's, it's, Hey, this is a decision that we all make. And I think it's, that's, what's been really good for us in our program, call it analytics, call it whatever, to have everything that you do to have a little bit more of that aggressive mentality and not just blitzing if you're a defensive guy or taking back to the offensive guy, but truly making those guys understand that, uh, you know, that we're an aggressive by nature. We can't just pick and choose when we're going to be aggressive. Just I like love. we can't pick and choose when we're going to have energy, right? Well, this is a day where we're not going to have a whole lot of energy. We're going to kind of be chill and laid back. It's just not going to happen in the program. I love that that rant about analytics right there. That got me ready to 
you know, <laughs> run through a proverbial brick wall. I, I want to talk about some former players, though, of yours, because I know I ask a lot of coaches, I have a lot of coaches on, whenever you ask about current players, you get a little, like, non-answers. No one really wants to put that soundbite out about a guy currently on their roster. So I'm going to ask about some guys currently in the NFL that got drafted last year. The one I want to start with is Curtis Brooks, because the three-tech on your defense last year, you called him the MVP of the defense at some point. How did he fall to the sixth round? Because I was there at the pro day, and he was electric. His explosiveness jumped off. I mean, I was very surprised he lasted as long as he did. Why do you think uh, kind of the NFL was sleeping on as much as they are? They were. Well, I would say two things. I'd say first, probably consistency. So the year before, he was on no list. Mm-hmm. He actually was a senior and was done. And then he realized that nobody even called him to even a local invite of any sort. So – I think by nature, he just was one of those guys who was never on a list. He was hurt that year. He, he didn't – not that he didn't play well, but he didn't play as much. Um, and then, obviously, when he came back, I think I think when he left, he went and played in the uh, – I'm not sure, one of the bowl games. It might have been the NFLPA game. I'm not sure exactly which one it was. I think he lost a lot of weight and thought he was going to be maybe a little bit of a different position. And it happened to our guy, Elijah uh, Ponder, the year before. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, the defensive end for went down to, to uh, Tampa. It became an outside linebacker type of thing. So I think just in his mind that all of a sudden he goes to that bowl game and weighs two-something, 55s, whatever, and realize – so I think that maybe it looked at him and said, okay, the consistency of maybe the couple years before, the consistency of his weight. Who is this guy and what is he? Um, but I know for us, I, I'm not lying – with exception to Amada, yes, <laughs> Sauce obviously would would be natural MVP. I've always said that the Curtis Brooks played as good as anybody did for us last year defensively. Yeah, the PFF grades bore that out. He's the second highest graded player on the team, obviously behind Sauce. So let's talk about Sauce a little because UCF game freshman year is when you said like you knew you weren't taking him off the field anymore. And he was a skinny yep. kid coming in, 155 pounds. But when did you know he was you know top five type of pick special? That like, hey, maybe I'm not going to get one of these guys. Uh, you know, yep. another generation. You know, it, it, we didn't know going into the season. I think in the in the spring or in the winter when we uh, when we did like our combine testing, and all of a sudden he ran four four something or something like that. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. strength coaches or whatever they're doing on those timing days, it's always a positive, and you try to. We don't do that, but, but all of a sudden that was the first time I was like, okay. You know, because the knock on him around the around the league was, well, he's, a, he's just a long kid that grabs. He just doesn't run that well. And that was the first time I'm like, okay, he runs even a lot better than I thought. And I think maybe it was the UCF game late, late a little bit mid-year. Because uh, we always, even going into the season, okay, it's probably his last year. He's probably a top two, three-round pick guy. Um, and he made a play kind of later in the game that he ran he ran the screen pass down all the way on the other side after he got blocked. And I remember us talking as a defense oh, goodness, this guy's going to be a legitimate first-round pick. They see effort like this. They see speed like that on the film on game day. Wow. I, I don't know that we realize I have uh, next-level guys uh, as we had. So you said that sauce, when you had sauce, it was like you could play 10 on 10. And Truthfully, like watching the tape, you guys were playing 10 on 10 a lot of times and the coverages you were running. How how much does that just change? How much did he change how you schemed your defense? And how much are you having to adapt now without a guy like that? 
Well, we didn't scheme a whole lot to this past year because I thought it was kind of set up for that guy to have to play a lot of, you know, one-on-one in a lot of situations. I think this past year we started, you know, making it a little bit more difficult on ourselves sometimes just scheming things up because people did a good job at trying to leave him on the backside when he wasn't going to get any work. And then we had to even grow that. You know, we were, okay, if he's on the backside, we can cheat the coverage the other way. Then all of a sudden they're leaving him on the backside, you know, covering, you know, maybe a flexed out tight end that they knew they weren't going to throw the ball to. So now we were having to scheme up a little more to go ahead and move him to the front side and other sides. Yeah. It, it made it a little bit more challenging for us. Sometimes you'd say, oh, it makes it easy. Just lock him up on somebody. But it made it a little bit more challenging for us to find a way to get him in a, on somebody or in a position where it fit around the, the structure of the, of the team. Um, but by nature, that position in general for us is, is really critical in, in being able to play a lot of one-on-one. So I don't know that we've changed a whole lot. I think that uh, I think we'll just be a little bit more multiple so that we aren't leaving a guy like we had on an island fighting. With all the innovations on the offensive side of the ball, since obviously you even started coaching, how, how difficult is it year on year? How much do you have to be staying ahead of the curve? And how much are you watching other defenses around college football to say, you know, I, you know, even like Georgia last year, I like what they're doing. I'm going to take from them, uh, you know, other defenses just to stay at the top of your game to make all these adjustments. Greatest lesson I learned from uh, from Coach Meyer, you know, along with a lot of others, but never sleep on the game. That's what the big thing is, is it's always evolving. And, uh, you know, everybody talks about the evolution of the offense. Um, the evolution of defense, I think, has been the one kind of spot that has fallen behind over the last 15 years. And I think we're doing a better job defensively as you look around and seeing some more, you know, evolution and, and changing things up, uh, especially in the college game. But I know for me, spending at least three days, two and a half, three days um, every summer with kind of the, the air raid offensive guys that uh, do this clinic every every summer where they get a house and, and uh, spend time just talking about, obviously, the, the evolution of, offense and throwing the football and I think that's where those the offensive guys in general do such a good job um so the last five years I'll, I'll spend try to spend at least two two and a half days um with those guys just sitting being around listening seeing the the, the new and different things that they're trying to do and, and implement and all while I'm listening I'm thinking in my head is all how to defend them they let you in those I, I can't believe they would let yes. you listen no, to those that I, seems I was I was very fortunate. So it happened about four years ago that I think I was the first guy because, you know, I became friends um, with someone and, and they actually said, well, why don't you come down? Maybe it's because you're a head coach. Too. I don't know. Maybe all of a sudden he's trying to be nice to me. And, uh, and he let me come in and he actually thought it was pretty good because not that I've done it, but then I could give a little bit of a defensive perspective on different things. And, uh, it's really, it's been great for me. Uh, it's been invaluable at not just, you know, learning and, and adapting, but also keeping you, you know, up to tune with uh, all the different things that are going on. How pissed off do you get when you flip on the tape and you see an RPO with an offensive lineman like five yards down the field? Well, if he's only five, I don't get as upset. It's when he's <laughs> seven, eight. It's when he's blocking a linebacker and driving him down as he's taking yeah. a drop and they don't call it. You know, and you're like, but now you're going to focus on a defensive lineman holding. I mean, that's that's some point of interest this year in college football. We're gonna we're gonna worry about defensive lineman holding the holding the uh, center or guard when he's trying to climb to the next level. Like 
I actually would say, I'd rather just say, hey, you can never be further than four yards or five yards down the field on a path. Meaning, I don't care when the ball's let go. I don't care when, you know, or what. It's just if all of a sudden we look up and an offensive lineman is five yards down the field and the ball's caught, you know, they're trying to say, well, when, 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 when the ball was released, he was only 3.2 yards. Yeah. Or he can't be over four yards. He was, he was just under four. Like, guys, he's blocking somebody that's in a drop. So, His back uh, heel was at three. His back heel. Yeah. It, still it's, behind. It's, it's really, they're allowed to be up to 3.9999 yards. And uh, it's impossible, really, for the official to, <laughs> to make the correct call. Um, you know, so I, I don't actually worry about it all that much. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I, I got to leave you with this because obviously, I think not obviously, I am a Notre Dame alum. I was at that Notre Dame game last year. We have to talk about this a little bit. What was that post-game scene like, and what was kind of the feeling heading back from, from South Bend after that? No, probably the greatest, you know, one of the best three-and-a-half-hour drives that you, you could ever have, you know? I mean, just your guys and, you, and you know, in a bus, kind of relaxing and, and having a good time, um, you know? And that's where, yes, the, the, the moment afterwards, I think, you know, when you're with your buddies, when you're with that team in that locker room, is so unique. That's that's the beauty of what sports gives you, you know, to go out and see your fit. Yes, those are all great things too, you know, to get the phone calls the next day, but just in that room to see all the work come together, um, you know, it, it, it's like a game like that on the road because any win on the road is really unique, you know. That's where I said the growth of our program from in, in year two when we won at UCLA. I tell you, when you're on the road like that, the growth of your program is just incredible. And I'd say the same thing about the Notre Dame game, the growth of the program because of how you did it and, and going on the road and, and just obviously the magnitude of Notre Dame in general uh, is really for the whole program, the guys inside it, it, it takes it to the next level. And, you know, we bottled that, we used that. And uh, I think that's what propelled us to, to, to the. Definitely a different experience than mine after the game, which was crying into like four long islands <laughs> at brothers post game, but so week one, Ohio State, Notre Dame, your former defensive coordinator, Marcus Freeman. Any part of you rooting for Notre Dame in that one? Or maybe like saying, hey, it'd be cool if they won something like that? Not a chance. <sighs> Nothing. It's not, there's not an ounce of blood in me that, <laughs> uh, that wouldn't always pull for your alma mater um, in, any, in any case, in any chance. It is what it is. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's just... Uh, I always try to tell people, at least, you know, you, you've always got one thing. If you played, your alma mater hopefully will always at least take you back and, uh, and greet you no matter, <laughs> no matter what. So um, my, little, my little guys had a little question because they don't know as much about your alma mater, right? Uh, we were watching the, the last game of the year, Ohio State-Michigan, because we played on a Friday. So we're at home watching it. And obviously, Ohio State was ranked ahead of us. So my little guys at seven years old said, Dad, are we rooting for Michigan? I'm like, what? No, we never can root against your alma mater. Like, but they're headed, they're ranked ahead of us. And if they lose, they go, I, guys, things all take care of themselves. You know what? We don't, hey, we don't want to root against somebody. We always root for somebody. And if it ain't us, then we're going to root for, you know, obviously the alma mater. And Michigan jumps guys anyway, somehow, right? So I, I, it didn't matter. Like I said, I said, yeah. just keep playing. All things <laughs> take care of themselves. You never know how it's going to work out. You worry about those things, that takes up too much energy. Well, I appreciate the time so much, Coach. Thank you so much for joining. Oh, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Oof, man. Fickle. That was like an analytics manifesto that he put on there 
about, you know, wanting to be aggressive, wanting to look your players in the eye. And like he was saying the things that we kind of say on the outside with, you know, why fourth down decisions and being aggressive is a good thing in the long run. Um, he really put it well into words there. So awesome stuff from him. And the thing that like I've done a lot of these coaching interviews now, the thing that I feel like is the kind of the common thread of the guys that really hit it, authenticity. Like you could tell when it's coming from an authentic place. And that's why the guys who were interviewing who are the top of college football, that's how they get there. They're not selling. You know, everyone talks about, oh, you kind of have to be a used car salesman to be a football coach. I don't think so. I think you just have to live it. Like you can't, if you're selling something, people are going to catch on to their being sold. They're being sold a bag of goods that doesn't actually exist. If you're living it, if that is your every day, when he said, you know, when I asked him, how do you not get complacent? Well, I wake up and I can put it on every day. That's how, like that, you don't have to sell then. You just are that. So that, that to me is one of the biggest takeaways that I've had in some of these interviews. More important than X's and O's, honestly. Yes. Yeah. Right? Like, cause if you get, I mean, like last year, I mean, if you get how many guys do you see have drafted? Nine. Not, yeah. Like if you have nine pros, like, I mean, not like he is a good coach and I'm not saying you don't have to be able to coach, mm -hmm. but like when you got nine pros out there going against dudes that are going to be working at enterprise rent a car, like that's going to make your job a lot easier. Yes. It, it, it is like, that's how you develop guys is buy-in because these are impressionable 18. Like I know how I was at 18, 19 years old. If I had someone like that waking me up every day, giving me guidance, I would have been a lot better person than not having that. You know, like you just like a lot of what player development is, is buy-in, is getting players to believe in themselves and develop themselves because you can put out a weight training plan all you want. If someone's going to go through the motions doing it versus someone actually wanting it, the results are going to be so fucking different. So different. I know from my own life. So different. All right, let's get into some segments. PVOOs. Positive vibes only online. So I come here bringing some maybe negative vibes. But it's, it's from a good place. It's wanting better. This first one comes from NFL's NFL underscore Doug Farrar of... Where's Doug at now? I know he was formerly with Bleach Report. Now he's at USA Today. NFL editor at USA Today. Does great work. Um, I, I know his book... Uh, is fantastic. The genius of desperation. Uh, obviously, a lot of buy-in, uh, you know, on the analytics front. But this take, I just can't get on board with this take. And I didn't want to tweet it to him because I didn't want to put negative energy out there. But he tweeted out, listening to Joe Thomas on the call of the Browns game. Joe Thomas said, "Gardner Minshew doesn't have a big arm." And Doug Farrar says, "If you're not watching the tape, say so." Which, Doug, he doesn't have a big arm. You got Gardner, that's like the fucking knock on Gardner Minshew. I, I went back and pulled some scouting reports. Here's this from Lance Zierlein. Scouts are concerned by perceived lack of arm strength. Intermediate and deep throws require additional air. Here's this from Dane Brugler. Can make all the throws, but doesn't have a power arm. I, those guys respect the hell out of them. They're, they are the best in the game, in the media space, at evaluating prospects. They say that. I went back and looked. I did some research on this. We have obviously charted every single throw of Gardner Minshew's collegiate NFL career. The farthest throw from hand to landing spot, 55 yards. 
right down the street. Came in Cincinnati preseason, or no, week seven, 2019. Q4, 615. Look it up if you want. 55 yards. He put, I, he put all he had into it. He did not have much more than 55 yards. Still took an L, though. I think that was Joe Burrow's first win. Who was that? I think. 55 yards, though, is not... We talked... Uh, go watch. Go back and watch the old NFL longest throw contest that were on YouTube that used to air during the Pro Bowl, which they should fucking bring back. Those were sick. Seeing Brett Favre show up hang, hung over as hell, sweating after doing nothing but throw the ball three times because he's just had himself a night out in Hawaii and still heave it 70 yards through the air to win those electric stuff. I would love to see. I would love to see, you know, what Josh Allen versus Patrick Holmes would look like in that. They need to bring that back. But every dude in that competition, I think Jim McMahon, or no, Jim Harbaugh, excuse me, not Jim McMahon, was like the lowest, and he was like 58. And that's probably what Gardner Mitchell could get to if you really tried to rear back. But like that was what he got in an actual game, giving it us all with pads on and whatnot. So if no pads. But that is, again, and the thing about, you know, the conversation around arm strength is oftentimes for draft prospects, people say average arm. A lot of people are scared to say below average arm because compared to college quarterbacks, it's average. Like Joe Burrow is an average arm compared to college quarterbacks. But once he gets to the NFL, in terms of starters, in terms of guy like actually playing quarterback at a high level in the NFL, he is below average. Joe Burrow is a below, below average arm. Gardner Minshew is below average. Below, below average arm. Just is. He also had Hail Mary last preseason, 2021. That was from 45 yards out that he didn't even make the end zone. Now, it did not come out of his hand correctly. But the thing is, when you have to give it a lot to throw it 45 yards, you risk having it come out of your hand incorrectly. When it's a flick, when it's an easy throw to get it 45 yards, usually you don't throw ducks like that. So positive vibes only online. All right, next week here, we have Matthew Paris. And this is not so much about Matthew Paris. This is more who's a uh, writer for the Washington Commanders beat reporter. This is about the content of the tweet. This is about Montez Sweat, actually, what he said. And he said, you don't hear this often. Montez Sweat was chasing a scramble, scrambling Carson Wentz from behind and was yelling, get rid of it, get rid of it. Wentz ran out of bounds instead. Something's never changed, man. Expecting a guy, whether it's Mitch Trubisky, whether it's Carson Wentz, Tiger to change his stripes after that Tiger has played five plus years in the NFL. The Tiger's that Tiger. I... I uh, still don't know whether the commanders made that trade. All right. And the last one here. And this one's more just like, this tweet's fucking incredible. Tony Grossi, who's the Browns, um, I guess, analyst, is I guess his role in his profile here. But he's been with the Browns for fucking covering them in some way, shape, form for forever. I remember when I was back at, first Browns training camp I went to, the one where Johnny Manziel was thrown left-handed throughout training camp, which was an absurd sight to see. It's, I'm still, I can like picture the scene so vividly. I think it was back 2016, maybe 2015, one of those two years, um, throwing left-handed and, and Grossi's doing radio. And that's when I was like, radio dudes are built different because he's just, he, you could hear him from like 30 feet away. And he's talking into a microphone five inches from his face. It was incredible. But here's a tweet from Tony Grossi. Said I'm approaching 5,000 blocked accounts on Twitter. Who will be 5,000? Stay tuned. He's not joking. I've never gotten 
the conversation. I've never gotten one blocking anyone. The only person I've ever blocked works at the PFF. His name's John Costco. And I block him because he tweets at me. He used to tweet at me like incessantly bad takes if I didn't. And so I blocked him as a joke uh, to get him to stop. And I just like kind of liked how it felt having him blocked. So I've had one blocked count. 5,000 though. And then to go bragging about it. It's just an odd thing. It's, it's not, I don't, I don't understand. I mute accounts, mainly accounts that tweet out bad takes, but like blocking entirely. I, I just, I've never understood. Never understood the prerogative. All right, let's get in a little would you rather. I got every time player, would you rather? Unit, would you rather? And a random, would you rather? Quinn, you want to break it off? Asking me one? Yeah, let's do it. So I'm going to start with player. And uh, I just realized I actually didn't write this in the doc, um, but I'm kind of glad I didn't because Surprise. I want to see your, yeah, I was going to say, I want to see your pure reaction because this is not, this is not who's just straight up better overall. Um, this is not who would you rather start a team with. This is just, I want your opinion as a Packers fan, oh, as a Packers shareholder, owner. Um, you just mentioned him, Brett Favre, Aaron Rodgers. Oh, fuck. Because I, I really and truly like, I don't know, like, where do Packers fans generally stand on that? Because I really have not seen. I mean, it's ride with your guy now is how you stand. Like Rogers is doing it now, so you're Rogers. Um, can't go against him. But man, like I, I have a soft spot for Brett Favre. He retired. I found out freshman or excuse me, my senior year, first period yearbook. I still remember clear as day. My friend, wise guy Richard Weisbach, said, Do "You see Brett Favre retired, Mike." And I'm like, I, I like bolted. I'm at my computer doing yearbook shit, whatever it was. I was an editor. I turn around. I'm like, you're joking. This is like, it just, it wasn't going to retire. It wasn't going to go out like that. I was at the fucking NFC championship game. Saw his last throw, the pick to the Giants. I was like, no, you're lying. He said, yeah, he just retired. I cried. I legitimately cried in yearbook. I had to walk out um, in case you're wondering how I got into football and why I'm a psychopath about this, but started crying, walked out, couldn't believe it. Cause like he, like I like learned football from watching him play. I think that's a lot of it, right? So, Obviously there's an age, yeah. right? If you didn't watch Brett Favre play, I mean, there's your answer, but you know, we cut like, I'm with you. Like I NFL quarterback club 98 is probably my favorite football, yeah. football video game ever. And he was on the cover even still on the cartridge. Yeah. I, I think I lean, I lean Rogers because as much as, you know, Rodgers just kind of laid an egg last year's playoffs against the 49ers. Favre laid a few eggs, man. And Favre was always liable to not just lay an egg, to throw it away. You, you know, to give away a game for you. The, the fucking Rams game, what was that, 0-2, where he threw six picks in the first half? It was just so demoralizing. Uh, he would just, he had that in him. He always had the magic in him to bring you back from anything, but he had that in him that, like, I'd just rather have Rodgers. It, it is wild that they went from the biggest gunslinger of all time to, the, like, the most conservative high-end quarterback in terms of just not throwing interceptions of all time. So I'll, I'll lean Rodgers, um, but a good problem to debate as a Packers fan. That's what I'm saying. Like, I, I have never really heard that argued much from mm -hmm. Packers. And maybe that's because I'm not, like, on Packers yeah. Twitter, but, like, I just have not – you just don't hear a lot. Yeah, it, and I think it's more just because you'll hear it once Rodgers retires. Yeah. It's just you don't want – like, Packers fans don't want to get into the weeds right now because of how the breakup went. Because, you know, Rogers has been so successful. You don't want to have that uh, and to 
because a lot of like the lo- like people I will say this people love Favre more than they re- love Rodgers. Like people the vitriol when it was Rodgers versus Favre was real because Favre brought the Packers back. They sucked before. Like they were bad for so many years. Obviously I wasn't alive, but my dad tells me it's like they, that was like they were nothing before him. And Favre made him something. Favre put him on the map. So yeah. Uh I think a lot of Packers fans are probably still lean far from that debate, but I'll go Rodgers. Here's a ba- debate that's not as fun if you're a fan of either team. Jalen Hurts or Tua Tungvaluwa? Same draft class. Yeah, this one was tough. Uh, you're a, lot talking of about nays- like, a lot of naysayers for both. Like right now, today? Yes. This season, who do you want? I almost like just gut feeling. I'm almost leaning Tua. Ooh. Just because just like, I, I don't think he has to be that good. For that offense to be right, mm-hmm. like you can be conservative-ish and just yeah. like complete, a, like if you have like a decent adjusted completion percentage with those receivers, which we argued last week, mm-hmm. like that that offense can still be pretty good. And I'm not knocking Jalen Hurts at all. I just I think like I don't know. Like I, I think I think I think the floor for the Dolphins' offense is fairly high. Dare okay. I say this year? Just just because like they just they got dudes. I will you know? say, I'll also say this. I think I lean Tua as well. I mean, I know I lean Tua. But if you flipped situation, like I would rather have Hurts yeah, in the I Eagles would, situation yeah, than Tua. And I would rather have Tua in the Dolphins situation than Hurts. Yeah, I agree. Because I with that right. offensive line, you could, you could just run option stuff. You can run Hurts. You can, you can use his legs. You can use that threat and still have this kind of high floor where you don't have to necessarily take advantage with his arm, with A.J. Brown, with Devontae Smith. Whereas, and that wouldn't fly as well in Miami. You kind of need a guy who's going to get that ball out quickly, get it out accurately to two receivers that just create separation immediately. So I'll say, I'll couch it with that. But if I had to, in a vacuum, pick between, I'll probably lean to him. All right, what's your unit question? All right, unit question. Um, this one's topical, and we talked about him earlier. Uh Alex Leatherwood, we'll call it the Alex Leatherwood Bowl. He goes from the Raiders to the Bears. Both O lines, not necessarily the best in the world. Um, so, away, you, Bears or Raiders O line? Love that. Really love that question. I, I think, I think I said the Bears were the most hapless offensive line in the NFL, in that their ceiling is so meh. Their ceiling is like twenty fifth best offensive line. Where the Raiders at least have like guys where it's like, you know, if John Simpson becomes something, if, if Dylan Parham, you know, looks good year one, could be. But like some of that was also if Alex Leatherwood turns it on. I, I, the best starter between the two teams is Colton Miller. So if you have a, a left tackle locked in that you know is good, I'll, I'll lean to that. I, I will lean Raiders on that, but it is. That, that was my thoughts too. Because you look at the bit, like they have, I mean, I'm looking at their their depth chart right now. They got Braxton Jones and Riley Reef, which, you know, I'm you, a Riley be, Reef Your best guy, player is but a— But you don't know what you're going to get out of him at this point. Yeah. Like he missed a bunch of time last year, and, I mean, he was okay with the Bengals. And, like, that was kind of what he was billed at when, when the Bengals brought him in, which, which is like he's older, like he's been solid, but, like, mm-hmm. we don't know exactly what we're going to get, you your, know? Your best it's, player it's a big question mark. is a slightly above average left guard in Cody Whitehair, which— we would say it's probably the least valuable position on the long offense line. So take that for what it's worth. All right, my unit, and this is kind of across units, and this is more 
theoretical. Would you rather have the commander's defensive line or the Ravens secondary? Probably what I would call best or second best defensive line, best or second best secondary in the NFL. Which way would you lean? Yeah, so I feel like this one kind of harkens back to the question we had last week. Bengals wide receivers or Dolphins wide receivers. Like, do you value the depth or do you value like just the the top heavy like stars? Because mm-hmm. I think if you're well, let me ask this: Are we assuming everybody's full health? Yeah, right? let's just like, do let's just do Chase a starting Jones healthy. Marcus Peters is starting healthy. four for the Commanders D line and then starting five for the Ravens secondary. Yeah, so I, I mean, if you're assuming Chase Young's healthy, right? Like they probably their yeah. their starters are probably right. Like. They're, Montez they're, Sweat, they're John st- Payne, Jonathan Allen. Yeah, those Jason. guys are probably better at their respective positions than what the Ravens are trotting out there at DB. But, I mean, if you look at the the Ravens' like depth, I mean, is Kyle Hamilton going to start this year? I don't know. No, that's probably your guy. Not. But, I mean, he's like – I know he's kind of been clowned on a little bit during the preseason, but, like, I mean, if we believe in our evaluations, like, he's probably going to be a pretty good player, and that's a guy that you can kind of deploy all yeah. around the secondary. He'll probably be like their dime back. Geno Stone has been pretty good in a reserve role. Like in Kyle Fuller, like I know he was kind of, he wasn't very good last year, but I mean, he's been a pretty successful NFL corner. Mm-hmm. And like that honestly is like maybe one of the more sharp signings of the off season, like kind of under the radar signings. Yeah. So Over I mean, they're, they're like, they're deeper. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think like, I don't know. I mean, especially with like a secondary, you have to have that sort of depth. So I, I feel like I'm leaning Ravens a little bit here. I'll say if think? we had... The, the worry is like Humphrey and Peters. I'll say they just assume they're back to the players they were before injury. Yeah, that's assume what I, that. I'm assuming yeah. like everybody, like just in a vacuum, everybody's healthy mm-hmm. and we're just, we're debating guys. I, I think I lean that secondary because I just think you can do a lot with that. As we saw with like the commander's defense being kind of like mid last year with that defensive line, still like doing work. Like they were good up front and the secondary was in such shambles and the linebacker groups in such shambles that it didn't really matter too much. So I think I lean the secondary, um, and especially lean the secondary if we're taking in the depth. That, the Ravens have so much depth. That, that's just kind of their MO. They just know that they want their worst player in the secondary to be still good, and that's kind of how they run, and that's how we would run. And that's why I was curious, and we'll talk to Brandon Staley about on Monday's show. You're going to hear his thoughts on that sort of, uh, let's say it wasn't D-line versus coverage debate, but like complete roster versus high-end players. We'll hear that. All right, what's the last one here? All right, I'm curious to hear your rationale on this because I think, well, I'll just ask it. Would you rather never be able to go to an actual game again, like football, we'll just say Mm -hmm. college or pro game, or would you never be able to watch a football game at a bar slash restaurant? So so basically like every time you watch a football game, it has to be at home. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I guess you could go over to somebody's house, but yeah, okay. it's a, that's kind of what I was, Homer, yeah, Homer house can't go to a, a public place oh, to watch again. That one's tough. I think I, I would lean never watch a game at a bar. And it's difficult because I obviously do that far more than actual games. That, that was my thinking. Like I, I, you go to more games than I do. Yeah. I go to maybe like, say like three or four Bengals games, a mm-hmm. couple UC games, and then like a Louisville game. So that's like seven or eight games. But I mean, even just like a random game, like, you know, oh, this looks like a good Thursday night game. Like, watch do you want to go to like Knockbacks or do you want to go to like Mount Lookout Tavern and watch? Yeah. Like I do that far more. And, and plus like including road games, Bengals road games and stuff like that. Like I do that far more mm-hmm. than I actually do going to the games. But the, the uh, in-stadium electricity yeah, is something yep. that you just yep. – 
you can't replicate if you haven't been to, you know, some of the best college NFL atmospheres. You you just got to do it. Like you get you got to go. You got to travel to the Penn States of the world. Um, to uh, shit, even the horseshoe's got a fucking good atmosphere. Like that is second to none. So to not be able to see that again, I, I would lament more than not be able to watch at a bar. Obviously, I do watch games at bars far more, but that one I would do. And now here's my last one. Would you rather go to a home win for the Bengals, I'll say for you, or a road win for the Bengals? And this was interesting, like the, the feeling being like you get gratification being around, you know, other fans that lost. Or if you're at home, though, you're around a lot of people that won and you're kind of celebrating with people that won. So which would you rather do? Yeah, this is this one's kind of topical, too, like coming off the Bengals run last year. Because mm-hmm. like I was at that Raiders game, right? Like yeah. that was... I mean, I, that had never happened in my, literally had never happened in my lifetime. So like, that was awesome. But also, and I, I don't know if you could call this like a true road win, but like we were at the circus, uh, what's it called? Stadium swim yeah. for the AFC championship game. And like, there were a lot of chiefs fans there. And like, that was cool seeing them being miserable and well, seeing them that, like chirp. Yeah. And then, and then that, that was pretty get it. So I'm almost like, I'm almost leaning road. Yeah, you know, see, the- I guess it depends on the game, right? Like, if, if I was to go to like a Bengals Jags game or something like that, and mm-hmm. they beat the Jags, like that's expe- yeah. like who, who the fuck cares? You know what I mean? So it, it almost depends on like the yeah the setting. You know, yeah. like if it's an upset win, and you know the other team, like other fans are you know crying in their beer and stuff like that. Like that's I'm leaning road there, but. Yeah, I'll, I'll say road. Okay, I'll road. Say road win. So yeah. I so I went to I went to 2010 playoffs Falcons Packers. Um, obviously, the other one Super Bowl uh, when the Falcons were the one seed, and this was right after the song "All All I Do Is Win" came out, and the guys behind us literally the whole first half because the Falcons were kind of up. I think they went up like 14-0 or 14-7 in that game. They kept saying "All We Do Is Win," "All We Do Is Win," baby. After like everything that happened good for the Falcons and they kept playing the stadium some of the most annoying shit and that stadium was loud as hell they used to pump in crowd noise uh, before obviously the new uh, Ben's stadium but that was it felt great it felt great to be able to like kind of like be like you know apparently not all you do is win after the game but a home win is just like I'd rather celebrate you know a game in company than stomp on throats on the road, because you know, like the celebration afterwards is, is not like is not quite the same on the road. It's more just like a relief. I, I afterwards. don't know. It depends. But on, you can't. I mean, you can't find like-minded fans yeah, and celebrate. Like the, but like if if it's a game where like fans travel well and mm-hmm. you know you're at a bar, maybe not necessarily some. like a Bengals themed bar, but if you're at a bar where there's like a lot of Bengals fans or you know, in your case Packers fans, like yeah. you can celebrate there too. Plus, it's cool like seeing other team stadiums and being like, oh, this is a lot nicer than Paul Brown or. Paycor it, now. It's a, but it's a debate. You know, oh, yeah. like Paycor. It's a debate. It's a good debate. All right. Last one here. Football Jason Power Rankings. We're going with the best feelings in sports. And I did this one because over the summer I had my first hole in one. Um, I played a lot of golf, like I said. Had never had a hole in one it? in my life. I Okay. So I mm. I was alone. Oh, okay. I merely FaceTimed my brother afterwards and walked from the tee to the green while FaceTiming him. So he can confirm for that. There were guys on the next hole who saw it. They can confirm as well. 
but it was not the same not playing with anyone uh, that I know. So that was sad. But my top five are here. Number five, game-winning hole out in cornhole. That sounds lame as shit if you haven't had it, but I'm telling it's you. It's oddly specific, but I know what you're talking when about. When the other team has 21 on the board or over if you're playing over and will win unless you put it in the hole, and then when you put it in the hole, you win, that feeling is fucking electric. You're like, that, that feeling's great. I, I literally did that in the game I played Luke Keekley. It's it's also Rosedale. cool too because if you're out Best somewhere like Rosedale, yeah. right? Like whoever's waiting to play next is is there, Watch right? Like they're like, oh shit, we're getting ready to go. So yeah, you got a crowd and like that's, it's always nice when you do stuff like that in front of crowd. Yeah, so that's number five. Number four, decleating someone in football. Now I haven't played football outside of when I was on The Bachelorette and I did declete someone in that, my own teammate, since seventh grade. But man, and it actually I did that at Notre Dame too for a year, and I did declete someone that too. But really laying a fucking hit on someone was the best feeling I remember in football. Scoring a touchdown, making a sick play, not nearly as good as just rocking, just hit, laying a fucking boom down on someone. That was the best feeling in football. So that's number four. Number three, hole in one. I've had one. It was sick. Allegedly. But it wasn't like as cool as I thought it would be. I hyped it up a lot in my head because I, I, I played golf growing up. I, like I played off and on over, over my life, really started playing more this past year. Um, hyped it up a lot. It was kind of just like, cool. Now what's next? Um, not nearly as gratifying as I thought it would be. Number two, dunking a basketball. Way cooler, in my opinion, than a hole-in-one. Like dunking a basketball just is a feeling of like dominance that you can't replicate. And the best feeling in sports is a walk-off home run. I had one in my life, eighth grade against the Crosstown Rivals in Champaign. And that was probably the best moment of my life. It's really been all downhill since then. But a walk-off home run, you just, game's over. You did the coolest thing you do in the sport. And I was down when I hit that home run. It was two outs. That was like, can't tell me shit after that. That's the best feeling in sports. Fun fact, I hit a walk-off dong in softball like Oof. two weeks ago. Best feeling it sports? Was, it was sick, yeah. It's the best feeling Even sports. at 32 years old in like beer league softball. You still get it. pretty it. fucking awesome. Bounced yeah. off the top of the wall. It was sick. That's. Yeah. Can I, can I throw a couple in here? What are yours? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I don't have like actual power rankings. These are just some to debate. And while we're sticking with baseball, uh, like a diving catch, like a sick play in the field. Like I think that almost, maybe not a walk off home mm -hmm. run, but like that, that might be cooler than an actual home run. <sighs> like if you, if you rob somebody in the outfield, I've never like robbed pretty, a home run. I, I do wonder if robbing a home run would feel I, great. I've never, I've never gone over the fence, but I mean, like, if you like dive in the gap and take mm -hmm. away like a double or a triple, like that's pretty cool. You know, like a diving stab and infield, like that's my I, only I concussion. My on. only concussion was diving. Uh, yeah, I got for one a play in fall so, ball sophomore year. Just snapped yeah. my head into the ground. Yep, I ran into somebody's knee. Not fun. <laughs> Not fun. Uh, and then the other one I was going to throw in there too. Uh, I guess kind of like decleating someone since we're sticking with football, but uh, mossing somebody, mm -hmm. right? Like jump ball, yep. contested catch situation. You go up, it just, that's pretty yeah. cool too. That might've been six on my list. Mossing someone it is probably the second coolest thing you can do in football. That, like that, it just, it's kind of the same. It's very in the same thing. It's just, it's, it's, of, it's one on one, yeah. me versus you. I dominate. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. There you have it. Those are your football Jason power rankings. If you had any of that missed, Feel free to send them my way. Would love to hear what you guys have. It's the best feeling in sports. And it can't be anything that has to do with the new trend of having sex in baseball stadiums. That has nothing to do with sports. That's a completely different thing altogether. All right. 
Make sure you're watching the movie club, American Underdog. Next Thursday, we'll go through that. Make sure you're sending me mailbags. Next Monday, we'll go through that. And we didn't have any good enough takes to make this week's show. Go to the SpeakPipe limit the bio. Drop your takes in there for this upcoming season, for takes on college football, whatever. Bring your takes to the show. I will grade them. Get in here. Enjoy your weekend. Enjoy week one of college football. We'll be back Monday with Brandon Staley talking preseason breakouts, talking some NFL preview. Till then, take it easy. Oh,